Welcome to Getting Through It, where we're here to help you get through it. I'm John Bwery, and as always, I'm joined by the risk-complacent or just human Dr. Lucy Jones. Today's episode is sponsored by SoCal Gas, who's committed to building resilience in the communities it serves. We also thank our individual supporters who help underwrite the work of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. Would you consider sponsoring this podcast for as little as $5 per month? Because your support enables us to serve even more communities. Simply go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search Dr. Lucy Jones. Now let's get to it. When most people think about risk, they think about two things, taking risks and avoiding them. Some people love the thrill of jumping out of an airplane to skydive, while others get anxious going on a simple roller coaster ride. What it comes down to is this, humans don't do risk very well. Objectively, insurance is the most common experience of thinking about risk car insurance, renter's insurance, fire's insurance, even liability insurance. That's where we analytically think about the risks we might be facing. Well, right. And when money is at stake, when you have to set rates for your insurance, we need a quantitative assessment of the risk. And so engineers and statisticians get involved and we have a variety of ways of calculating what the risk of various activities is. And for some people that has become the definition of risk. So we tend to think of risk as an objective quantity, something, the risk out there that we're trying to understand. But actually, risk is a human construct that allows us to manage danger and the threats that we face. We need a way of making decisions. And when you look at the evolution of human decision-making, when we're faced with a threat, back when we were on the savanna, we needed to act quickly. So we have an evolved intuitive system that receives data and very quickly responds to it. A really interesting side note is that we respond to data that's conveyed through sound more quickly than by sight. Our eyes can be closed, but our ears stay open and we are wired to respond quickly to what comes in through sound. It's actually sort of why I went through this thing of creating music where I converted the global temperature data to pitch, because that gives us a much more visceral, emotional experience of just how much the earth is heating up. It's the music that's played here at the end of the podcast. What's really interesting is that it's always you, Lucy, who brings us back to music, but also gives us this information that helps us understand a little bit more how we work in response to risk. But let's get back to it. What about risk? So research in psychology, including a newish field that's called risk analysis, has shown that we have parallel processing systems for risk in the human mind. We have an evolved system, that rapid response based on our emotions, and we have a newer construct of analytical processing. It's logical, it's much slower, and attempts to give us a more quantitative answer about what risk we face. It's interesting, the two of those things together, because when someone says you're being emotional, we usually mean that as an insult. And when someone's thinking logically, it's usually thought of as better. But in this case, wouldn't the emotion be better at managing the risk or the danger rather? That's exactly what the psychologists are showing. We can use the logical system to provide an outside check on our emotions, but we don't act to avoid a risk unless our emotions are involved. You think about what I understand, earthquakes. They trigger a lot of our emotional buttons because they're very rapid, you don't see them coming. They're all the things that make a risk seem more dangerous to our emotional system. 
And so we will do a lot about earthquakes, even though the risk of dying in an earthquake is extremely low, about the same as your chance of being killed by lightning. Whereas at the other end, we have climate change, where it's taking a very long time and the scientists are all understanding it. And that makes it just not emotionally feel as frightening as it should. And, you know, we've talked about this even in this last year and a half since we started this podcast regarding the pandemic. The less we know, the more scary it is, right? So the longer it goes on, the more we think we know. And so we find it to be less risky. Even though today, cases are still higher than when we initially shut down in March 2020, and we were hypervigilant and very scared and thought the risk was way greater than it actually was at the time. The lack of understanding, lack of certainty makes things more scary. But also, we adapt to what we've got. So the fact that this has been going on so long makes it seem less scary. And there's an interesting thing, too, when emotions are involved. Emotions don't do arithmetic very well, so they don't scale. We can be very upset about losing one person, but when it becomes a million people that have gotten sick or have died, it doesn't make us a million times more upset. That's just the way risk works. And we can think of risk as analysis, that computations that says pandemic is one of the worst things that's happened to us, or risk as feelings that says, okay, this is just what life is and you go on. And what we know is that we can use analysis to give us a quantitative approach to judge like cost-benefit analysis, but we need the feelings to be willing to act. But you can also talk about risk as politics. There's an obvious one when your political tribe determines what risk behaviors you undertake or you avoid. But even in the supposedly analytical assessments of risk, we are making political or value judgments in how we go about quantifying the risk. For instance, if we use number of deaths as a summary indicator of risk, we are making implicit value judgments in how we define numbers of deaths. Is it numbers per some population? Is it numbers per product produced that's potentially dangerous? And we are making assumption that deaths that result from a behavior that you undertook voluntarily by choice and that gives you a benefit is the same as the death from something that you did not choose and is being imposed on you by somebody else. It also implies that the death of a child is as important as the death of an 80-year-old. Should we be talking about years lost? You can easily imagine a range of arguments to justify all of these different ways of assessing the different types of deaths. But to arrive at any one choice, you have made a value judgment about which deaths are undesirable, which ones are more important, or even to treat all deaths as equal is itself a value judgment. This is a lot to think about if you've not thought about it before. But what comes to mind is that it doesn't matter any of that information if your family is the one that has the death. Because at some point, data and statistics are actually real people. When they're impacted, they have a ripple effect and sometimes a crippling ripple effect to those around them. So how can this help people manage their risk? In the end, you need to understand that the emotional response will almost outweigh the data. I mean, the data is important, but you have to believe in the action. So if you're not acting on a risk that you know you face, for instance, what earthquake plans do you actually have if you live in California? You should look at your emotions, decide what matters to you, and understand it's not just believing in a certain quantitative measure. It's feeling what it does to you. Well, we'll leave it there for now. And until next time, 
I'm John Bwery with Dr. Lucy Jones and you getting through it. Getting Through It is a production of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. Visit us online to get past shows and become a supporter at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search Dr. Lucy Jones. Our music is performed by Josh Lee and this closing music is written by our own Dr. Lucy Jones. 